Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with a fascinating new public survey. Now think about this now. Is Canada a socialist country under Justin Trudeau? And his liberal government. Is that what we have in Canada right now? A socialist country? Don't forget they've got to deal with the NDP. I think most people would describe the NDP as a socialist party. If you listen to the federal conservative leader, Pierre Polyev, that's how he describes Canada right now. He says we've got a socialist government here. Have a listen to him. He's going to renovate Canadian society to fit uh, his... Uh, Trudopian ambitions. Um, this is not a time to re-engineer society to his liking or to his socialist ideology. Okay, let's discuss this now because here's a new survey that I find fascinating. This is just out from the Fraser Institute here now. Check this out. More than 4 in 10 Canadians and half of younger Canadians say their preferred system of running the economy in our country is socialism. Socialism. Is this what Canadians want in Canada? And do people really understand what, what that word means? What is socialism? Let's discuss it now with my guest, Jason Clemens. Jason is the executive vice president of the Fraser Institute. Very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Jason, thanks for coming on. Morning. Thank you. My pleasure. Yeah, you bet. So this is really, really interesting. So tell me about this poll here. What did you find out? Sure. So the poll is the the first project in a, a year and a half uh, program that we have looking and exploring views and the reality of the experience of socialism. And so I, I'd say there's really three key insights, at least for Canada. Uh, our study also has data for the U.S., Australia and the U.K., and it's pretty similar across all four countries. Um, as you alluded to in your opening, there's clearly stronger support for, quote unquote, socialism uh, for younger groups. Uh, so it's 50% in Canada, 18 to 24. If you look at plus 55, it drops to 38%. So clearly the younger you are, the more, uh, the higher the level of support you have for quote unquote socialism. And the reason I'm putting it in quotes is because one of the questions that we asked, um, which is different than most other surveys that we looked at, um, is we actually asked the response to define socialism. And clearly uh, particularly younger people, are not defining socialism based on its dictionary definition or its historical definition. What they mean by socialism is much more government programs and or a guaranteed income provided by government. What they, what they generally don't mean is they want the government to own oil and gas companies and the banks and insurance companies and, and et cetera. Um, and the third component, which I think is probably the most problematic, 
is that by and large, people do not want to pay higher taxes to pay for (laughs) So you get into a circular problem where, yes, you want, or again, we've got 50% of young people saying, yes, we want socialism, and we define it as more government services at no cost and or guaranteed income, but we don't want to hire GST and we don't want to hire personal income taxes. We only want a very small group of people to pay for it, which is just not workable. And so... I think it, I think there's some really interesting results that we're now going to build on over the next year and a half to try to provide more actual information about socialism. Okay, some interesting findings there for sure. It's fascinating to hear that a large percentage of the public wants what they what they perceive to be socialism: big spending, government, very generous social programs, a guaranteed basic income, which has been kicked around in Canada. But then, like, how do you pay for this stuff? You know, money doesn't grow on trees. Where is it supposed to come? We got come from. We got big deficits in our country right now. And really, I think this gets to the heart of the political debate in our country right now, especially between Justin Trudeau and Pierre Polyev, the conservative leader. We just played a clip from him there. Jason, let's have a listen to Justin Trudeau here now. Now, what you'll hear here is this is Trudeau sparring with Polyev in the House of Commons here. And, you know, the conservative has been going after the liberals for spending too much money, especially during the pandemic and afterwards. And here's Trudeau's comeback saying, hey, you know, yeah, you, you don't you don't want us to spend money. Guess what the cost of that is? Let's have a listen here. The conservatives say they stand with Canadians and then they stand in opposition to measures that ensure that Canadians can send their kids to the dentist. Then they stand in opposition uh, to measures that will give families uh, who pay a large amount of their low incomes on rent uh, to get an extra bit of help. Uh, Then they stand against and continue to stand against uh, child care fees that have been cut in half across the country. Okay, so does that sort of cut the diamond there a little bit? Because we heard Polyev say earlier he he regards Trudeau as having a socialist ideology. And Trudeau saying, well, you know, you guys say you support Canadians, but you don't support, you know, free dental care or giving helping low-income Canadians pay their rent or doing these very generous and expensive child care programs. Is that... Is that socialism that he's describing there when you, when you listen to the prime minister in your mind? So it's a great question. So I, I think there's, there's clearly been an evolution of what the term socialism means. Uh, and in fact, we have an essay coming out next month on this very issue. And so, you know, for those of us old enough to have either grayed or lost hair, uh, <laughs> we remember when the the definition in the dictionary was actually what we meant by socialism, which is the government owning the means of production. That means owning businesses, directing the economy. And the evolution of socialism is very different now. And what we mean by that generally is a much more active government in providing services and income supports. The, The problem, and this is certainly a problem that the prime minister has exacerbated is he is selling a vision that is not workable because he's not willing to raise taxes to pay for those goods and services. And so it's one thing to say we want to provide um, dental care or we want to provide pharmacare. It's very different if you say we want to provide those goods and services, but the GST has to go to 20%. And in fact, yeah. when, when you look at the polling data, Support for government programs, when it's linked with a tax increase, collapses. Right. So 
you know, there, there was a, a poll uh, done about two years ago looking at specifically support for pharmacare, well over mm-hmm. 70%. As soon as you linked it with a small increase in personal income taxes, it dropped below 40%. Now, we ourselves did a poll last year on all three of the major programs, and we saw the same result. And so the concern I have in terms of a, a democratic discussion about what we want and what we don't want from our uh, political system is that we're now in a discourse that's a discourse that's not workable. And, and, and in some ways, I think, frankly, it's dishonest to say that we can add all these programs and we're just going to borrow to finance them as if the borrowing doesn't result in higher taxes okay. in the future. And, and that's really my concern that, that the nature of the, the democratic discussion that we're having right now is simply incomplete and unworkable. And to me, it lessens the quality of our democracy. All right. Welcome back as we continue to discuss whether Canadians want a socialist Canada. Is that the system that we want in our country? New survey out from the Fraser Institute says a a big percentage of Canadians actually want a socialist system in our country. Who's going to pay for it, though? Less support for higher taxes to pay for more generous social programs. Jason Clemens is my guest. Just before we take some calls here, Jason, let me play another clip here for you from the conservative leader, Paul Liev here. Again, going after the Liberals for running two big, expensive governments in Canada. Have a listen. I want to get your thoughts on this. The places that are beating us have high wages. Free enterprise Ireland, free enterprise Switzerland, free enterprise Singapore have higher wages, significantly higher wages than here in Canada, and they're beating us all around. High wages are good for competitiveness. High cost of government is not. Okay. I thought that was interesting because when you think of countries that you mentioned there, Ireland, Switzerland, Singapore, these are all like low-tax jurisdictions, right? Uh, They are. I think one of the important things, though, to recognize is that all of those uh, four countries or three countries all have services that would be roughly comparable to Canada. The the difference is that those countries have much higher rates of economic growth. And the, the reason I raise this is the federal government itself has acknowledged an important study by the OECD last year looking at 32 industrialized countries between 2020 and 2060. And Canada is expected to have the lowest rate of growth of those 32 countries. Oh. And the, the implication of that is that we are not going to have the resources to afford the kind of programs that some people may want mm. without decreasing our standard of living. And, okay. and so at the core this is about how are we growing our economy and the resources available. And then we can talk about the split between individuals and families making decisions themselves versus the government making decisions. But at the core, you have to have resources with which to use. And, um, you know, I, I think some of the policy, many of the policies, frankly, the federal government has brought in are having detrimental effects on our growth prospects, which again, okay. That influences living standards as well as programs provided by government. Let's squeeze in some calls here. Steve in the West End. Hi, Steve. Go ahead. Hey, Mike. Um, I think something that needs to be understood is we have to look at history a little bit. If you look at uh, societies that have collapsed, um, the Soviet Union, um, even Rome, they had bloated, inefficient, expensive 
bureaucracies that didn't get the job done. I think this is being, this is missed. Something, and I think what Polyev is after is he, he wants to create a system where people have more money in their pockets so they can choose what's important to them if they have kids for childcare or want to go to the dentist. He's trying to have, that's where he's coming from, not I'm going to choose what's important for you here. This is what you have to pay for. What, what, so if, you don't, what if you don't have a high income? What if you can't afford to send your kid to the dentist? Then what? Okay, but what we're talking about is a system where you have potentially more money-making options and not have to pay out as much. So yeah. if going to the dentist is important to you, then that's a priority where potentially you'll have more, could have more money to put towards that if that's important to you. Okay, Jason, what, what do you, you want, th- I think. Jason Clemens, what do you think of that? Well, so I think there's a, a couple really important nuances. So one is, are the programs we ta- are, we're talking about best done by the federal government? Or are we better as a federalist country to let the provinces figure out what makes sense for their individual provinces? And frankly, the Trudeau government has just stomped on the idea of federalism almost since they got elected in 2015. The, the second question, mm. though, which I think is probably even more important, is we can't talk about dental care or pharmacare or daycare if we don't have the underlying resources available to fund them. And so when Canada is expected to grow the slowest of 32 industrialized countries for the next 40 years, and I mean, like we're talking about countries like the Czech Republic having a higher standard of living than Canada. When we have abundant resources, both natural resources, labor resources, entrepreneurial resources, it just seems to me there's something fundamentally wrong with the incentives we have in our system. Okay, squeeze in one more call. Robert in Coquitlam. Robert, you got 30 seconds here. Yeah, I I just look at, I think where we have to start with the, the financing of our country is our government employees. Okay, that's my opinion. And also the... uh, Everybody wants to help everybody, everybody. I mean, and mm-hmm. the government can't say no because it's all, it's all about politics. They want to get voted in next time. So, I mean, we're giving the world away to our indigenous. We're giving our homeless everything and anything they want, including free drugs. We have to be okay. able to okay. say no, okay. enough's Th- enough. Thank you, Robert. Okay, out of time. Jason, fascinating discussion. More calls coming in. We'll just have to have you back on. Thanks, thanks for coming on today. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. Welcome back. Let's talk about electric vehicles on the show now. And this is something we've discussed before on the program. And we've talked specifically about the rare earth minerals and chemicals that go into making electric car batteries, specifically cobalt. You take a look at where most of the world's cobalt comes from. It comes from a very confined area in Africa in the Democratic Republic of Congo. We talked about this on the show before, about the conditions at these cobalt mines in the Congo. Probably the phone in your back pocket or your purse right now contains batteries that has cobalt in it from the Congo. Got John Rustad standing by to discuss this. Have a listen to this report here first on cobalt mining and the cobalt. Have a listen to this. They're digging in trenches and laboring in lakes, hunting for treasure in a playground from hell. Hard enough for an adult man, 
unthinkable for a child. And yet tens of thousands of Congolese kids are involved in every stage of mining for cobalt. Women and children are doing so-called artisanal mining. But don't be fooled, this is no quaint cottage industry. At barely 10 years old, children lug heavy sacks of cobalt to be washed in rivers. From as early as four, they can pick it out of a pile. And even those too young to work spend much of the day breathing in toxic fumes. You've seen any of the videos of some of these cobalt mines. They're really quite shocking. I encourage you to give me a follow on Twitter there. I posted one the other day. This was a video that was taken by Siddharth Kara who just wrote a best-selling book on this called Cobalt Red. He was a guest on the show last week. And we talked about that video that he took. Take a look at that, man. Go, go online, give me a follow on Twitter, and take a look at that, that mine, because the pictures are, are really more shocking than the words. Okay, let's discuss this now with my guest, John Rustad, Conservative Party of BC MLA in the legislature. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. John, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Okay, I know you've been following this closely, so tell me about your, your thoughts on this co this cobalt mining in, in Africa. You know, it, I think the author of uh, Cobalt Red put it best. Uh, we shouldn't be trying to improve our environment by destroying theirs. And when you look at what's going on, you look at the horrific conditions that these children are working in uh, for a dollar a day, and that dollar a day being the difference is whether they could put food on the table or not. I mean, it is just, it's heartbreaking to see this. And quite frankly... You know, we as a society, we should think of ourselves as global citizens and we should be looking at that saying, now, you know, we, that isn't something we should be supporting. Yeah, one of the problems is that this stuff is in such a, a confined area, a lot of it in, in Congo. And so a lot of the world's supply of this, this mineral are coming, is coming from that area. And yeah. you're talking about some of the biggest and most powerful companies in the world that, that use this stuff, whether it was Tesla, Amazon, Microsoft, I mean, it just goes on and on. Your thoughts? Well, 75% or thereabouts of the, of the cobalt comes from the Congo, yeah. uh, and then it gets refined. In, in China, 80% of the world's cobalt is refined, and of course they then produce 75% of the electric batteries, the, the uh, lithium-based batteries that uh, are powering so much of our devices these days. Yeah. And, you know, consumers, I don't know how you can live without, you know, phones and, you know, I'm talking to you on a cell phone today and, and iPads. But the difference here is government shouldn't be subsidizing this. And that's where I've come. That's where I really have an issue with subsidizing things like electric cars and electric bikes. I think governments need to make a statement and say this is not good. This is not right. Companies need to do better than yeah. relying on this kind of uh, this kind of uh, collection of cobalt. Yeah, I. One of the things that I find really frustrating about it, too, is when you listen to some of the statements that come from companies like you know, Google, Apple, Tesla, they will all say they do not tolerate uh, child labor, that this type of uh, cobalt that is sourced using exploited child labor is not part of their supply chain. It's not in their supply stream. And, and they don't know where this stuff comes from. You know, when I spoke to Siddharth Kara about this precise point last week, and I, I, I asked him about that, he said, look, you know, when these companies say that they don't support this, what's going on, the fact is they know damn well that a lot of this cobalt that's in their supply chain, in their system, is coming from these mines. Let me play a clip here for you, John, from Siddharth Kara, the author of Cobalt Red, on the show last week, then I'll get your thoughts. 
I took numerous trips. Every time I went to the Congo, I peeled back deeper and deeper into the human degradation. It's like dialing back the moral clock centuries to colonial times where uh, human beings are being used for brute labor. They toil in utterly hazardous conditions for a dollar or two a day. Yeah, it's really, really brutal stuff. So let's talk about what you think should be done about it. And, and you think that what you think the B.C. government should be doing something about this, correct? That's correct. And, you know, I think I think it's even Elon Musk has had the courage to say that there is no way he can guarantee that some of this um, cobalt doesn't go into his batteries. And there's no way right. anybody can guarantee that because it mixed in with everything else. Right. But as a province, you know, we we currently have a subsidy for electric vehicles and electric bikes. And, and it's great, you know, to want to be able to do things uh, that are positive uh, in the province. But we have, like I say, we have to think of ourselves as global citizens. And I think it's time to bring those subsidies to an end. And and for that matter, you know, the the, uh, the privilege of being able to use a high-occupancy vehicle lane um, for electric vehicles, I think that should come to an end too. People need to realize as global citizens that there are consequences to actions, there are consequences to our choices. Whoa, People whoa, whoa, hang on, hang on, hang on a second here now. So, so you're saying that if someone drives an electric vehicle, they should not be allowed to drive in an HOV lane? No, what I think is high-occupancy vehicle lanes should be for high-occupancy vehicle, regardless of the vehicle. But currently, our, our, what we have in the province is if you drive an electric vehicle, you don't have to have high-occupancy. You're allowed to use an HOV lane. Oh. And that's so sort of, even, so sort even of, if, that sort of privilege should come to an end. So even if you have a, like if just one person driving an EV... You're allowed, just, just the driver, no other passengers, you're allowed to drive in the HOV lane? Is that right? That's correct. Huh. That's correct. And so these huh. practices, you know, I just look at and I think we're sending the wrong message. And so we should stop these subsidies and we should force companies to make sure that they can prove that they have ethically sourced cobalt. I mean, if that's even possible in the society today, before we spend tax dollars on subsidizing these type of activities. How much subsidies, like what are the value of the subsidies that the B.C. government has offered to for people when you buy an EV? Like it's a good deal. If you buy, if you buy an electric vehicle, if you can find one, if you can afford one, um, there are some generous subsidies and rebates right from the province. So how much money from the BC, from British Columbia taxpayers are going to these subsidies? I, I mean, I think it's varied over, over the years. It's somewhere between five and $10,000, I think, that goes towards these. Uh, but, uh, you know, the other thing to note about this, the average person can't afford an electric vehicle. Uh, it, mm-hmm. this, it's just out of their range. And so what are we doing? We're asking people who are working for you know, 20 or $30 an hour who can't afford an electric vehicle to pay taxes to subsidize somebody to be able to buy an electric vehicle that uses cobalt that uh, you know, promotes the kind of conditions that, uh, that the author of Cobalt Red is talking about. Okay, well, of course, the reason that the government offers these subsidies for electric vehicles is because of the climate change crisis we've got, that electric vehicles have got much lower, they've got zero emissions, effectively, when they're operating. So we need to save the planet. So what what about climate change? This is what the government's trying to accomplish, right? Well, like I say, I mean, you should look at the at the all-in on on the uh, carbon footprint of electric vehicles versus uh, non-electric vehicles. But regardless of that, go back to what the author of Cobalt Red said, right? We should not be trying to improve our environment by destroying theirs. 
And that's something that we should be really thinking about as global citizens, right? It's not just about well, what's in our backyard. Right. I mean, but if people who support EVs will argue that, okay, you can't deny that there's an environmental impact from creating these, building these cars and creating these, ba- and building these batteries, that's obvious to everyone. So yeah, there is an environmental cost to electric vehicles, but it's still better than an internal combustion fossil fuel burning vehicle. Like at the end of the day, you add up all the emissions, the EVs are still better. Are you not, you don't buy that? Well, I, I, I would argue, and I've, I've seen the reports, when you look at the all-in carbon footprint, and that includes everything from mining, the materials, building the, the products, servicing the products, and, and uh, recycling the products. When you look at the all-in, it's questionable as to whether or not an electric vehicle has any benefit whatsoever in terms of emissions. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you get an argument from that from the people who support EVs. Speaking of John Rustad, Conservative Party MLA at the legislature in Victoria, talking about EVs, cobalt mining, which we focused on the show in last week, Siddharth Kara. I, I recommend that book to, to the listeners, by the way, that's Cobalt Red. It's an eye-opening book, and it's a bestseller, and it's really got a lot of people talking as a result. Um, when you talk about getting rid of some of these some of these subsidies, you know, these subsidies, the rebates you get when you purchase an electric vehicle, they do help people to get into these EVs. A lot of people would like to drive an EV. Our family would like to, to get an, an EV for our next vehicle if we can. Like, so, and, but you're talking they're, they're expensive, but you're going to make them even more expensive if you end the rebates, right? Well, like I say, I, I mean, is that where our tax dollars should be going? Do people work hard in this, in this province? you know, to put food on the table, to be able to provide for the family, uh, and they have to pay taxes for the services we have. I just look at it and think, you know, those, those dollars could be better spent in terms of supporting families, especially when you look at what is happening in the Congo and what's happening, to, you know, to these children and the abuse that's in there. I just think, you know, I, we need to be putting in electric vehicle infrastructure. We should continue doing that. But we should not be spending tax dollars on subsidizing those kinds of activities that are happening in the Congo. And, and as for your idea to say that electric vehicles should not be allowed to use the HOV lanes, so I'm, I'm John, I'm taking a look at the BC government website on this right now. So you have to apply for a special sticker on your EV in order to take advantage of this program. And if you have a qualifying electric vehicle, you can get one of these decals, and then you can drive in the HOV lane with with an EV. How many? How many electric vehicles actually have that sticker, do you know? I, I do not know. I don't know what the number is. All I know is when I'm driving down uh, you know, Highway 1 or uh, some of the other highways around in the lower mainland and I look at the HOV lane, I see one of these vehicles go by with a sticker on it. And I yeah. look at it and I think, you know, is that right? Should this be you know, a privilege for the people that can afford an electric vehicle compared to the other folks? You know, it, it, I think it just sends the wrong message. Okay, well, it's an interesting idea. John, thank you for coming on to talk about it today. Thanks for having me on, Mike. I look forward to talking to you again. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy-on, easy-off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks.
Okay, here we go now with, is everything broken in Canada? This is a comment and a debate in our country that got started by the Conservative leader, Pierre Polyev. So let's go back to how this all began. This is something that the Conservative leader has said frequently. He feels like Canada feels broken right now, in his words. And you'll hear Justin Trudeau responding to him here in a moment. Have a listen to Polyev here first. Everything feels broken. But let me tell you something, Justin. There is pain in the faces you do not see. There is suffering in the voices you do not hear. And there is distress and even chaos in the places you do not go. There's Pierre Polyev there going after Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Everything feels broken in the words of the Conservative leader. Let's listen to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau pushing back on that. Have a listen. We're not going to let a handful of angry people uh, interfere with the democratic processes that Canadians have always taken pride in. And the vast majority of Canadians aren't the types to throw up their hands and say, oh, it's all broken. Most Canadians roll up their sleeves and say, you know what? This is tough, but we're going to be there for each other. Okay, then he goes directly after Polyev here, accusing him of basically bad-mouthing the country when he says, every, when Polyev says everything is broken. Listen to Trudeau here. When he says that Canada is broken, that's where we draw the line. This is Canada. I don't accept Canadians and politicians that talk down our country. Okay, let's discuss this now with my guest, David Coletto. David is the CEO of Abacus Data Research and fascinating new research that he's done on this issue. David, thanks a lot for coming on today. My pleasure, Mike. Good morning. Good morning to you, David. Let's talk about the survey that you've done. I think this is really fascinating. You did a national survey of 4,000 Canadian adults here conducted online here. Canada feels broken. Is that the way Canadians are feeling? Do they agree with that? What did you find out? Well, I, I found out that, as you might expect, public opinion is more nuanced than either Mr. Trudeau or Mr. Polyev make it out to be, right? Um, what we did find is that there are many Canadians um, more than uh, believe, are dissatisfied with the way can things are going in Canada than are satisfied. And when we specifically ask people, do you agree or disagree that it feels like so many things in Canada are broken? 65% agree. That's similar to the Leger poll that was on the front page of the National Post a week and a half ago that really ramped up this conversation even more. So we, we yeah. found a very similar number who agree with that. On the other hand, when we ask people, do you agree or disagree that you'd rather live in Canada than any other country in the world right now? 70% agree with that. Half agree that given the state of the world today, things in Canada are going pretty well. And finally, almost 80% of Canadians agree Canada deserves to have a great reputation among people living in other parts of the world. And, and so that's the, that's the first piece of, of our research. It shows that you know, people can, can both at once feel that things are broken um, and at, at another time feel that things, you know, they'd rather live in Canada than anywhere else. Now, when we dig a little deeper and we actually ask people who say, look, I, I feel that things that I've used to used to feel always would work aren't working right now. We ask them, is it being caused by, in your mind, global factors or decisions that yeah. governments are making? We didn't point to the federal government. We just said governments in general. Mm. 
And what we found among that group, that 60% who think things aren't working that well, about half say it's because of government and half say it's because of global factors. So when you actually disaggregate it all together, you get about 35 to 40% who say things are going okay in Canada. And then the rest who split almost evenly between it's government's problem or fault and, well, look, the world's a mess because there's a war in Europe and we just come out of a global pandemic. And so this whole rhetoric around Canada's broken, Canada's not broken, how dare you, I think it is not where most Canadians are. They're, they're feeling pressure. They're feeling anxious about where things are. Um, but it's not, there's no simple solution to say it's all government's fault. Um, but on the other hand, they want government to, to be paying attention and trying to do something about it. Okay, I think your description of it as nuanced is was a really accurate one. When you start breaking down the the ways that Canadians feel about the country right now, it it does get it, it's not an, an an easy one to break down. But let's let's start with some of the numbers there that you just described there, David. So first of all, you know, you asked satisfaction with the country, forty seven percent dissatisfied compared to just 32% who say they are satisfied with the condition of the country right now. So more people unhappy, more people dissatisfied than satisfied. Is that a problem for Justin Trudeau right now? Um, it, 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 not necessarily. I think, I think it's not high enough for them to be really worried, right? Because yeah. um, they got about 33% of the vote in the last federal election. That was enough for them to win a minority, certainly not enough to win a majority. Um, but if you actually include the group who says, look, I'm neither satisfied nor dissatisfied, well, then you actually have about half who aren't dissatisfied. Um, okay. And so the question then for a lot of them is, in a hypothetical election, which is you know not one coming necessarily anytime soon, is, is what I have now in terms of a federal government better or worse than what it would be if say, Pierre Polyev was prime minister and leading the government. And so I don't think we're at the, you know, things are so bad that people are willing just to throw out whoever's in, in power right now. But there is certainly in our polling, we've been tracking this far more worry and concern about the direction of the country than we've seen um, since the Liberals were elected in 2015. Sure. So there's no doubt the mood is more sour today than it's been in the past. Yeah, for sure. I think that's that's pretty clear here. And then when you break it down by region, so let's talk a little bit about that, David. Like you've you've done some interesting breakdowns by by province, for example. So let's talk about British Columbia here. Do, do British Columbians kind of are similar to the national trends on this, a national breakdown? They are actually pretty almost exactly the same. So in BC, yeah. it's thirty three who are satisfied, forty eight dissatisfied. Um, as uh, you know, similar to Ontario. Um, who have almost exactly the same kind of number. So BC and Ontario at an aggregate level are, are very similar with each other in terms of their, their overall sense of, of satisfaction. Yeah. And then when you start taking a, like comparing Canada to other countries or Canada's place in the world, this is where it starts to get intriguing too, because, you know, clearly your poll is finding a lot of sour feelings. Like you described it there, 65% saying they agree with this idea that, Everything in Canada feels feels broken right now. But then you say, okay, all right, Canada's we got our problems, but do you still think that Canada's the place where you want to live? And most people are saying, well, okay, we got our problems here, but it's not like I want to live somewhere else, right? 
Yeah, and that's be- yeah, and when we dig deeper than that, and we say, okay, if you compare Canada to other countries like Canada, so think of you know the UK, France, Germany. Um, do you think, for example, um, interest rates are better, about the same, or worse than in those countries? Right, a majority of fifty percent think that in Canada things are worse, but fifty percent also think things are either better or about the same. Same when it comes to inflation. Uh, or the quality of the healthcare system. Those are the three things where more Canadians think it's worse somewhere else than it is here. But on other things, like, let's say, integrating immigrants or the quality of our democracy or even economic growth, you actually have more people who think things here in Canada are either better or the same um, than worse than in those other countries. So, it's again, it's nuanced, right? And, and there's no doubt people are deeply worried about our healthcare system, interest rates, and inflation are putting a squeeze on household budgets, but there is, I would say, a prevailing view among most people, not all people, most people in the country, that says, look, there is a whole bunch of factors that are affecting it. Some of it is government decisions. Some yeah. of it is global factors. And look, and, and that's why there's, there's anger, there's frustration, but most of that anger and frustration is, 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 is very much isolated among more conservative-oriented voters who really hate Justin Trudeau anyways. Yeah. And no matter what he did, they wouldn't be happy. And, and Justin and Pierre Polyev is feeding that and, and, and really building a movement out of that group of people. Yeah. And this is interesting, too, because I think this gets down to sort of the political bottom line on this thing as we get closer to an election, which I think is going to be a barn burner of an election here when we get to one. But it's like, OK, it seems like Polyev has tapped into something here. Obviously, a majority of Canadians appear to be unhappy. Canada is broken is something that got a lot of attention. But then, you know, and this is this is the, the, the intriguing question that you ask. Okay, so if you ask people, if you think the country does feel broken right now, well, whose fault is it, right? Like, who who dealt this mess? Mm-hmm. Is it is it Justin Trudeau's fault? Is it the federal government's fault? Or Or is it factors beyond the government's control, right? Global supply chain, pandemic, you know, in, in, you know, inflation that's happening out, outside of Canada as well. I mean, this is what Trudeau says often as well. Yeah, we got problems, but it's not really my fault. We're, we're in a tough climate here globally. So when you, when you break that down, yeah, a lot of people feel like maybe the country's feeling a bit broken right now, but maybe they don't, maybe a lot of people don't blame Trudeau for it. Yeah. In fact, uh, you know, more people blame global factors than 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 Trudeau or any other government, yeah. you know, whether it's the UD government in BC or, or um, any other provincial government. Right. I think I think there is a subset, a sizable number, about one in four to one in three Canadians who, who do point to the federal government and say, you have created this problem. Right. But these are the same people, in my view, who would have said that to any problem they feel exists because they, they never voted and wouldn't vote for Justin Trudeau uh, yeah. and the Liberals, right? And so, and so we, I think, I think the, the debate we're having about is Canada broken is a fair question to ask. Yeah. The, 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 next, the next question, though, is, so who's going to fix it, and what are the solutions? And that's where I think as you talk about an upcoming election, that's what the election's going to be about. And I don't think we know yet how Canadians are going to react to that question uh, when the time comes. Because if people aren't blaming Trudeau today, and it doesn't mean that, that Pierre Polyev won't be successful in convincing people that, that Trudeau is at fault for, for the problems that we're facing. If he does do that, if he is successful, then, then Pierre Polyev is going to have a very easy time at winning the next election, because that's what our data also shows. 
Yeah, and I'm I'm just taking a look at your Twitter feed right now, David, and you just tweeted out that a breakdown of voting intentions nationally here, and uh, ooh, the the Trudeau Liberals here are dipping in in Quebec. That's a problem for them. Yeah, yeah, it is, and I think that that's a reaction to you know the appointment of the the the, uh, the anti the uh, Islamophobia uh, representative there that that in Quebec I think wasn't well received. Yeah. And so the Liberals are down five points in, in three weeks in Quebec. And that was, you know, if the Liberals have any chance at getting reelected, they have to do as well as they did in Quebec and perhaps even better. And and it doesn't mean they won't. But but it but it does show they're they're they can't they can't count on or take for granted support anywhere in the country right now. Yeah. Yeah. Liberals down five points in Quebec and the Conservatives up five points. So. Yeah, the Conservatives benefiting from that. David, some fascinating numbers here as always. Thanks a lot for coming on to talk about it. My pleasure, Mark. Take care. Okay, let's talk about the interest in UFOs out there right now, especially heightened after the recent uh, Chinese spy balloons saga. Let's check in with uh, Chris Rutkowski now. Chris is a UFOologist, science writer, University of Manitoba. Hey, Chris. Hello. Thanks a lot for coming on. Before we talk to Chris, let's have a listen to this report here now from Glacier Media reporter Alana Kelly. A bright object shining in the sky. But what is it? What could that be? Could it be a meteor, Starlink, a drone, a spy balloon, or... Is it a UFO? Whoa, what is that? By definition, unidentified flying objects, UFOs, are unidentified. In 2022, Canadians reported 768 UFO sightings, with BC being the third highest province to spot one. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the the numbers there in that report, Chris. So when you talk about over 700 sightings, is that... Is that a typical year or do you think that do you find that more people are seeing more stuff up in the sky these days? Well, actually, the 768 cases from last year is actually down from the from the years that had been, uh, you know, a little bit previous to that, uh, slightly up from uh, 2021. But 2022 took a, you know, a little bit uptick, but it's still overall down from the high levels we've had before. But and this is the big one is that. Uh, uh, since this whole balloon thing uh, has been blowing up, pardon the yeah. butt, uh, <laughs> that that there have been more sightings that have been reported. So, you know, maybe we'll see that 2023 is going to be an increase. Do we still know what these balloons were? Like, were they really spy balloons? There's been lots of different reports about what these things could, could actually have been. Do we know yet? Well, we we're very certain that the first one was, in fact, a spy balloon. The mm. ones after that could have been some sort of um, commercial balloon, uh, not necessarily a party balloon, as some people have said, but you know there are, there are organizations that put up uh, balloons themselves, geological surveys, some mining companies, uh, individuals uh, testing for communications. Uh, certainly Google put up its own set of balloons a number of years ago. So there's a number of things that they could be. Yeah, when you talk about when people see stuff up in this up in the sky, Chris, like most times there is a, a simple explanation. Like people might see something they don't understand. Like like you said in that clip, the nature of a UFO is it's unidentified, but there's usually an explanation of some kind or another. Correct? Usually, and there's a small percentage every year that we just 
don't seem to have an easy explanation for. And those are the ones that people tend to focus on. And they can be literally anything. Uh, there was a report, for example, last year uh, of a pilot who was flying over Ontario and had seen uh, um, a wingsuit or somebody in a wingsuit. You know, those people wow. look like flying squirrels flying yeah. by the plane. You know, that's pretty strange. And we have no idea what that was unless somebody actually was doing that, you know, over our Ontario, but uh, you know that was one of the ones that was classified as unexplained. Yeah, I, I remember I was on my my back porch uh, one night a uh, little while ago, and I looked up in the sky and I saw I saw what looked like kind of a a string of pearls going across the sky, and then I was assured later that was the Starlink satellites. And uh, looking up photos of it later, go, yeah, that's what I saw up there. A lot of people see those. You ever hear about that? People see the Starlink satellites up there, and they're mystified by that one. Oh, we're getting a lot of reports of those, yeah. They're spectacular to look at. If you don't know what they are, they are puzzling. But, you know, we had a report uh, last year from somebody who was in a sailboat at the mouth of the Fraser River, uh, not too far from you there. And uh, they said that, uh, you know, sort of a classic Hollywood-style flying saucer with a a silver uh, underside flew over the sailboat and hovered for a while and then zipped away. We don't know what that was. Interesting. Now, this is your your passion, Chris. This is something you're keenly interested in. We've talked before in the show. Have you ever seen anything that you could not explain? Like, have you seen a UFO yourself? You know, no, I haven't. I've been all over the place. I've been uh, into uh, northern BC, where there are some things around Smithers at one time. I've been out to the East Coast, um, and I've been, uh, you know, from one end of the country to the other, uh, where there are supposed hotspots. But, you know, the, the UFOs seem to be scared of me or something. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, maybe one of these days something something will appear to you. Speaking to Chris Rutkowski, Chris is one of Canada's top UFO experts and you know when we the saga of the spy balloon i'm sure was of of keen interest to you chris and when we think about this particular story and lots of stories emerging about chinese state state interference in canada's elections and spying going on we hear a lot of unexplained stories about ufos being seen near american military installations do you think that that could explain some of these sightings that maybe there's maybe there's some uh, intelligence gathering going on that we don't understand how it works. Oh, I think that's very possible. Um, in fact, uh, there were some reports uh, of things that sounded very similar to this Chinese balloon uh, over Canada even last year, but in years previous, uh, where pilots had said that they had encountered these large balloons and were never, you know, taken all that seriously or never investigated. So maybe, in fact, that's what some of these things were. Yeah, I, I think so. Now, you know, the the big question, obviously, is, you know, are there aliens involved in any of these UFO sightings? I mean, do you believe in that? Do you believe in aliens? Well, my background's in astronomy, and uh, as a good astronomer, I know there's probably life out there in the universe somewhere, and there's aliens out there somewhere, but we don't have any proof that they're coming here. It doesn't mean right. that they're not. We just don't have any solid proof that that's what's happening. It's possible, given the number of stars out there and the number of possible civilizations, and, you know, if somebody a little bit smarter than us has figured out a way to travel between the stars uh, easily, maybe. But, you know, we just don't have that proof yet. But it, it's a possible, possible outcome.
Do you think that there should be more disclosure from government? Like, it's, it's been interesting to see in, in the United States, there have been disclosures of Pentagon documents in, in recent months on UFO files. Uh, I've, I've talked to experts in Canada who say the Canadian government may be in possession of some intelligence or files that have not been released to the public. I mean, do you think there should be more disclosure about what, you know, government knows about UFOs? I, th- I think that there probably should be some more disclo- disclosure, especially in Canada, where we do know that uh, uh, in ca- cases are really not investigated by the Canadian government. In fact, we we know that, for example, uh, a pilot who had seen something out by Yellowknife uh, last year, or actually over the past uh, month or so, um, it was reported to Transport Canada, classified as a UFO, and yet the case was never actually investigated. So either there's a clandestine organization somewhere that's not doing its job or or nothing's happening at all and yet you know we we do have reports from the government from the canadian government um you know hundreds and hundreds uh, of cases that have been reported over the years and uh, maybe it's time that uh, you know there's an agency that took these things a little more seriously chris it's always interesting to talk to you thanks a lot for coming on today no problem thank you Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.